where are we voicing concerns, but with a with a solution focus? I couldn't. I don't know where that was at. And so I was like, I would love to have a space like that. Um, but mostly, I'm sure people won't really come here that much. I'll have some books. Mostly it was my books in the beginning that I was selling because I was like, I got to sell something in this bookstore. <laughs> and I had no idea that Harriet's would be the, the kind of place that it became. No idea. And people were like, oh, yes, you did. It was You called it Harriet's. I was like, well, we called it. I called it Harriet's because I felt like there was no other person that I would love to celebrate in that moment. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And I am Trey excited to bring you my conversation with Janine Cook. That's Janine A. Cook. And of course, I identify with how she calls herself because I like to call myself Risa E. Lewis, not just Risa Lewis. Janine is a creative, a designer, a writer, a poet, and the owner of Harriet's Bookshop, which is located in the Fishtown section of Philadelphia. She opened this with a mission to celebrate women artists, women authors, and William activists. Janine and the bookshop came across my radar during COVID. I saw social media posts, I saw local news, and I knew that I had to check it out. And you'll hear more about the bookshop and about the namesake, Harriet Tubman, as well as the second bookshop that Janine has opened um, entitled Ida's for Ida B. Wells. Now, the bookshop has gotten quite a lot of attention. Vogue magazine, New York Times, Oprah magazine, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Alice Walker, and more. Let's get to the conversation where I'm in Philadelphia and Janine is in France, following a bit of the journey and the paths James Baldwin took, and also writing. Writing, well, you'll hear about it. You famously start your conversations, interviews with whose shoulders are you standing on? Mm, I do. <laughs> ah, yeah, that I mean, and so, you know, in my tradition, we we pay honor and homage to our ancestors. Uh, we recognize that, you know, we we don't get to anywhere on our own and we're, we're never uh, alone. Uh, I always try to make sure I my, my my work is dedicated to to the guiding light of Harriet Tubman and thinking about how what she was doing when she walked on this planet can be replicated uh, in, in, in today's modern times. Um, thinking about Ida B. Wells, who also, you know, remarkable human beings who decided in the face of some of the worst treatment that humans can, can inflict on one another, that they were going to continue to stand for what they valued, to stand for what they believed in, to, to, to shine a light on, um, Injustice and to not only shine that light, but then to be a stand for to do something about it. Uh, and so I definitely stand on their shoulders. You and I, I'm sure, will talk more about my mother, who's who who may, has made a way out of no way <laughs> many a day. My mother, who um, when I was about nine or ten years old, went completely blind uh, and still continued 
to get her education, still continued to be a force within our community, still was teaching Sunday school, you know, you know, and so this was a woman who um there's there is I, I'm a hundred percent sure there's no bookshop if there if it wasn't for my mother who is back in Philadelphia right now, um, making sure that things are running, training youth as they come into the bookshop, greeting customers, you know, she's she was she's been hosting in the underground area of the bookshop, she's been hosting a class for um, recently uh, for women who were recently incarcerated. Like she's a force, you know, so there is no, I do none of this. I, th- I think if, if she wasn't the woman that she is. Uh, and I, I do strongly believe that the, one of the reasons we made it through COVID, right, through what, what felt like um, impossible circumstances was that I have such a tenacious mother uh, who, had flown in to, she had flown into the United States because I was like, mom, 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 you know, I, I, I can't do nothing without you. You got to come, you got to come see the bookshop and, you know, come be here with me and then got stuck in the country. Um, and as she's here in the country with me, I have, you know, any random crazy idea that I've had, she's been right there championing and, and helping me to, to bring it to fruition. Uh, so Harriet's and Ida's are very much family-owned businesses, um, family-operated you know, operated institutions. And I think that um, so I, there's just no Janine without her. And speaking of business, women-owned business, books, bookstores, you've said about Harriet's, we are a community hub, mm-hmm. a secular sanctuary, mm-hmm. a place where you can really reckon with your own stuff. It's a bookshop meets an art gallery meets a monument. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think even especially being here among all of these monuments and, and thinking about what it what it means to be a people that were, um, for many of us, kidnapped and, and, and brought to a land that wasn't our original homes. And so not necessarily having a connection with the land where you're from and having to reestablish that, not having... You know, I was in a home the other the other day that was from the 1600s, right? Not necessarily having um, that level of that being able to connect to our history um, in, in as far back as possible, right? Where we we are a, a transient people, uh, and so I think that this this idea of monument building of of creating spaces that don't necessarily or neatly fit into any of those past categories, right? The bookshop is a bookshop. Yes, we have books, of course, right? Um, But it is not purely about the bottom line at the bookshop. And the bookshop is also this space that's always changing, right? And so when people are often like, why wouldn't you just leave it alone? Why would you waste time and money (laughs) and, you know, and resources on redesigning the the shop, Um, and it's just like, well, because this is also a space that is a creative space, right? Um, it's also in many ways an offering to 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 the spirit of Harriet. Uh, and so I, it, it has to stay beautiful. It has to be aesthetically pleasing. It has to continue to be abundant. Um, and then it's also a monument, right? Because in many... You know, now we're looking at in Philly, there's this whole argument about the statue, the statue this, do we want, who should build the statue, da-da-da-da-da. But in reality, 
and I believe moving forward, there gets to be, again, like I was talking about that kind of tribunal, like we get to make some decisions about how we want to venerate our ancestors and not allow that to be the task, the responsibility, the right of the state, because that's not their right. It really, that, that, that gets to come from us and we get to decide how that should look. Um, and, and there is no, con- there should be no conflict <laughs> about how we would like to honor our, our ancestors. And so that's what Harriet's is. It's like, it's, it's my, and, and now a community offering to her, to her legacy. You cannot come there without learning something about her, um, whether that's directly or indirectly. Same thing with Ida's, right? You come to Ida's, there, you know, there, you are having an Ida's experience. Whether you, you know, if you ask them questions, why is this right here? You know, why is that painting over there? Why is, you know, there are things in that are built into the space to honor her, her time and her legacy. You're in Europe, and you said you're writing mm-hmm. uh, the power of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a political statement. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your memoir. So my memoir is the journey to opening this bookshop. How did that? How did that happen? Um, especially as somebody who, um, you know, I had a baby at nineteen. I was housing insecure for many years. I, you know, for some time I lived in a in a what we call a shell in North Philly, which is a house that doesn't have you know like walls and bathroom and running water. Uh, and at that time, I was also a college student. And so I've lived in these very interesting and sometimes opposing um, worlds and how those have informed the kind of the kind of bookshop that you see today. Yeah, the bookshop you and I chatted, um, it's really gotten props visits and acknowledgements. Yeah. Travel, Travel and Leisure Magazine wrote about it. Oprah Magazine wrote about it. Hannah Jones has visited. (laughs) And you recently, and this is sort of adjacent to the bookshop, but we talked about whether if you put something in writing, you put your wishes down on paper, do they come true? And I'm going to read, you won't believe this, but on December 31st, 2021, I wrote down all my wildest dreams for 2022. And right on top of my list, under complete my memoir was your name. Have tea and chat with Alice, Alice Walker. Walker. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, so I, Alice Walker is my introduction to um, is an introduction to myself in in many ways. Right, I recall being. Um, my my older sister telling me that I wasn't ar- allowed to read The Color Purple. I wasn't allowed to watch it. She was like, it's too, it's too, <laughs> she was like, it's too much for you. It's too much for you. <laughs> and so, of course, what do you do? Somebody tells you you can't when you're in high school. <laughs> you like, I got to find this book. And I remember like sitting in the back of the library on like, you're supposed to be at lunch. I'm in the back of the library hiding, reading The Color Purple. Um and feeling like, oh my goodness, like there are there are other me's out there, um, and they and they and not even in this time period that we time like we have traveled through time, uh, and and thinking about a character like Celie who resonates with me so much, and I'm often looking for my inner Celie, um, in in trying to say see where where she lies and seeing where there are places where I feel um, inadequate 
and and where did that come from and who placed that that there and how do I how do I you know redeem that redeem myself from that um and so Alice Walker when I got exposed to her and I read that color purple then it was like, oh, I have to read everything by by this woman because she's my only person. I thought she was, just, I, I thought she was the only one, and I was like, then I have to know, I have to see all of the things that her mind um, offers. And she's just been somebody who has been with me for a while. And so when we started the shops, and I know I don't know if you know about the shirts that we have that say um, Zora Octavia Alice Tony on them. Um, those four women serve as like the foundational, uh, you know, like there's like a foundational text. Uh, they're they're the, they're the four mothers of the bookshop, and so anytime you go in the shops, you should be able to see, feel, experience something related to those four women, um, those literary, you know, I call them literary godmothers. Uh, and then Alice is the only one that's still alive, and so I was like, I have to, I have to meet this woman, I have to, um, and. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did meet this woman. I was writing her publicist and saying, hey, it would be so great to have Alice in Philly. Uh, Salamisha uh, Tillett, who ended up winning a Pulitzer, had, you know, she visited the shop and her, she wrote a book about In Search of the Color Purple. Her and I were, you know, immediate soul sisters and we were like, we have to do this. And I was like, Salamisha, isn't it the 40th anniversary? Like, let's do the, let's do the math. And she was like, it is, it is. So we, you know, I, I, she gave me contacts, nothing was working. And so sometimes that's to everyone who's like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's like, you know, timing is this really interesting thing that we don't have control over, but it unfolds in perfect order because I put it down. I was like, we sent out what we could send out. I don't know. It didn't seem like it was working. Um, we knew that Gathering Blossoms was coming out and that that would have been perfect to, but I was like, no matter what, we'll have the book. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll make it available to the community and we'll do our part. I get a random call from the radio station <laughs> and they're like, Janine, we've been invited to do, um, to do something with Alice Walker. Would you be interested? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> And at first, they just wanted us to do like a, a little radio show, and I was just like, "No, you do not celebrate Alice Walker with a little radio show. <laughs> you know, you do not. Like, we have to do all that we can do in this moment in Philadelphia." And so we created uh, an Alice Walker weekend. So for four days straight, every event was related to some text that Alice Walker had um, had written, and. We interviewed her, of course, but also she, you know, she was like, I love this website that you all built. And I love this. Like she actually she saw the that, you know, we're, we want to celebrate her, that she is she is uh, a godmother to us and that we we really respect and honor her, you know, now and in the, and in the hour of our death. So we, we really appreciate her. Uh, and so my last uh, column, which you were reading from, was also a continued continuation of that dedication because um, someday I hope to be a godmother, a, a literary godmother. And there are a host of young people who we hope, who we, you know, we support in the bookshop as well as my own um, son who I write about in that article. And I, I, there's some serious work that needs to be done. Love work, right? Heart work. Um, especially with that age group, that eight, that 18, 19 age group who are 
at the root of many of the violent acts that we're seeing in our country at this moment. Yeah. You are an educator, you're a writer, you're a business owner, you're a mother, mm. you're an activist, mm. you're an advocate, <laughs> you're a designer. Mm. And you actually did a deep dive in design for Nicole Hannah-Jones mm. and the 1619 Project. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it so much. I, I we're, we're having way too much fun <laughs> in the bookshops. And so Ida's bookshop was completely redone to and turned into a juke joint. You know, we you know, we had a whole team come in and created the color purple on as a space, which I was like, oh, this is so, you know, I had this thought where it's like, well, how do we, how do we create an immersive book experience where a person comes in and now you're literally inside of a book? And, you know, when people come in, I ask them to guess what book you're inside of. And now we have this interactive experience happening. And I'm like, what do you smell? What do you hear? What can you touch? You know, and this is like, this is all my classroom tools, but just now, you know, used in the community. Um, And for Nicole Hannah-Jones, who poured an immense amount of research into the 1619 Project, who gathered people, it wasn't just her text, but gathered all these other writers um, I just felt like the least we could do, the least we could do for what she was doing for us. And she's been taking a lot of, also, she was taking a lot of flack. You know, she was she was getting beat up in the media. Um, and it was just like, you know, this, the least we can do for this woman um, is to design a space that allows you to enter into her book in a new way. And so I contacted her. She wrote me right back. I was just like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I was like, oh, my goodness. Nicole Hannah-Jones just wrote me. Uh, She wrote me right back. I was like, this is what I have in mind. I know it sounds a little weird, but I'm going to turn my bookshop into your book. Um, Is that okay? (laughs) She was like, that's amazing. You know, so she connected us with, with, with her publisher and we got our permissions together and Lots of I've, both projects, lots of artists. It's very collaborative. None of it is just me. I'm a designer. I can vision it, but I can't do all of that work by myself. Uh, and I love the collaboration. I love bringing in people who wouldn't typically work together and inviting them to an opportunity to create a, to set a piece together on a bookshop. Uh, and so, yeah, she came in. She brought her family. Um, I got to interview her and ask her what I felt like were really important questions. And she was such a lovely person to to host. She was a lovely person to have in the space. And her face, she was just like, oh, you know, like completely, completely in awe. (laughs) And so she signed all of our books, of course. And then we set aside some books where I would like for every contributor of the book to sign those books. And then those will be something that we, you know, keep as collector's items. When did you first realize you had a voice? When did you start using that voice? Ooh, great questions. Um, I was probably about, again, around that time, nine or 10 years old. Um, I do want to say that when my mother was, my mother was going blind. My father had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. It was a really rough moment in our time, in our lives, at least for me. And um, I wanted to start this. And I, you have to understand, I'm not even a dancer, but I do think I had, as a child, wanted I had an organizing 
mind. Like I'm an organizer. And so I, the, I wanted to start this, this praise dance group and people were like in the church and they were like, no, the, the pastor has always said he won't allow praise dancing in his church. It's, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't fit his whatever, whatever. And that was the first time where I felt like um, there was a person in a position of authority who was making a decision that did not seem fair and that if with the right amount of communication and dialogue, I believed we could come to uh, an agreement that met his needs and also met the needs of the young people that were in the in the church. And so I got the young people together and we're like, <laughs> I'm, and I'm nine, ten. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, having everybody sign that this is what we really want to do. Um, I went to a woman named Aunt Tina, and I, I call her Aunt Tina, and Aunt Tina was at the opening of the bookshop, which you're going to see with the, from this story how significant that is, because I was nine, and I go to her, and I'm like, Aunt Tina, this is our list, this is what we would like, this, you know, this are, these are the ways that I think we could get it, I am not even a really good dancer, <laughs> it was really just the principle of it, and Aunt Tina was like, I support you 100%, and I requested a meeting with the with the pastor of the church and the secretary of the church was like, you want what? I was like, I would like to have a sit down meeting with the pastor of the church to discuss our our needs and demands. And <laughs> she was like, OK. And so I sat down with him. I went over all of our, you know, this really intense list of things that we thought needed to happen. Um and and I explained that Aunt Tina would be our adult who would work with us if there was any issues. She had already agreed. I, I mean, I tried to cover every base that I could think of. And the pastors looked at me and he said, okay, <laughs> you can do this. And that little okay was such a big deal for me. I, I think it, it, it opened up my idea of possibility of what it means to, to, you know, when there's something that you see that's wrong, yes, we can complain about it. We could be upset about it. We could, you know, we can, you know, but what do you do to, to, to actually create that change? And that, that was, that was one of the early ones where I was just like, oh yeah, this is how, this is, I like this and this is how this is done. Um, yeah. What's amazing about that share is often the time that we realize we have a voice is different than the time that we actually use that voice and put it into action, mm. age, stage, maturity, fear, mm. fill in the blank. Mm. And you, you kind of synced it real time. I, oh, wow. I really celebrate that. Mm. I celebrate that. Oh, that was a big deal for me. And I, 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 you know, once I got to college, that's another one. I got to this university of the arts. I was like, seems like this, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a question. Seems like this university isn't doing very much in the community. Like we're all artists and we're working hard on our crafts, but why aren't we like connecting with people who live on the blocks? And then I'll say, it, and then I was just like, "What do you, what, what do you think? What do you think?" Asking other folks that I, I was in relationship with, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And so 
same thing. I was like, well, let's let's do something about this. Let's 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 see what we can let's see what can be done. And so that's where Positive Minds came from, which was my first organization that I started when I was in college. It started out of that desire to say, you know, I saw a hole. I saw something that didn't quite make sense. I asked questions. And then I went to the institution and said, this is what we would like to see done. Now, the institution in that instance was like, nope, that's not you don't you're not going to get designation as a club. And and I said to the institution, yes, I am, because I don't to be a club. I I don't need we don't need um, we don't need validation from the institution to do what's right. And so we still continue to do that work anyway. And so what I would do is I would check out all the equipment that I could check out for the weekend, cameras, microphones, et cetera. And I would invite my friends to do it. So we were all checking out all this equipment and then we would take it to take it to the block where we, you know, we were working and we were teaching storytelling on the block to families to support with building community because that is what I thought made sense for the equipment more than like, I'm going to make a video about myself. Okay, cool. You know, but how is that going to make this experience, you know, make this community any better where, where we live? Um, and it was powerful. It was powerful to do stuff like, you know, a community where everyone knows your name project and asking folks on a, on a city block in Philadelphia to learn one another's name so that we felt safer. Um, so that the children and the families felt safer being together uh, and so the, the Better Our Block Project, like little things like this where um, there was a hole. Somebody had to fix it. <laughs> I want to make the connection between vision mm. and and voice. Mm. And mm. Um, you are often having the vision and then um, connecting it to voice. And actually, it doesn't, it's not one way. Mm. Um, they work mutually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And going back to your mom mm. and vision mm. and her periods of blindness. Mm-hmm. And during your childhood, she shared this, you shared this, that there were some periods where she really could not see. And how did that manifest for you as a child? Well, you know, when, when it's your mother um, and your mother is unable to see, and most of our lives, she could see sometimes very, you know, okay, sometimes not at all. She was very good at disguising whether she could see or not see. Um, And so sometimes we wouldn't know what was, what what level she was, I would call it a good eye day or a bad eye day. Um, But, you know, when we moved from Brooklyn to Virginia, it was us and our mom. And there were days where she would be driving the car and it was common for us to that was a game it was a game we played where we would tell her what color the light was so we she knew whether she needed to stop or go oh it's it's yellow stop stop and she'd say you know it was a game to us until one day one of my sister's friends was in the car with us and when we got to the house she was like oh my gosh I was terrified we were like terrified of what (laughs) what were you terrified of she was just like your mom couldn't see. What if she would have? What if she would have ran the light? And I was like, we, when we're like, she would never run the light. She listens to us. We we trust each other in this way that that would never happen. Um, but until then, I didn't realize that it could be something that was strange or different. Um, and also, I think you know when my mother couldn't, you know, when she had on the wrong. Two wrong, two shoes that didn't necessarily match. When her clothes, you know, her shirt was inside out. When you know any mistake she made when she washed a dish, but it wasn't completely clean. 
um, when she swept the floor, but it wasn't, you know, swept well. You know, there there was also a level of empathy and compassion that I think we learned really young. Like that was, it was just never okay to, never okay to make fun of someone's um, ability or inability. It was always like, well, how do we support? How do you serve? Uh, And then, you know, one of the other things that she did, again, as a woman that was blind, um, was every, you know, every Sunday she was just like, after church, we're going to go into nursing homes in the community and we're going to sit with our elders and we're going to sing to them and we're going to hold their hands and we're going to make sure that they know that they're not alone. And so we would go and we'd have our little service and we would speak. I mean, this is what my mother did. This was just her, this was her idea. And we just did it as a family. Um, and that's what I wrote about in my college essay when I decided to to go to school because it was so impactful to meet these elders who were, you know, who had beautiful stories to share, who some of them hadn't been visited in in a long time or at all. Um, and they would they would we became their family. They look forward to seeing us on Sundays. We look forward to seeing them. Uh, and this was something that she did out of the out of her heart right it was never something that we were blasting to say to other people look what we do we we're so generous we're so charitable we're so kind like no it was about you know how to where are the where are the holes and how can we fill them mm-hmm. vision and voice mm. uh, when you're taking the amtrak train at new york penn station there's there are these big banners that say visit philadelphia mm. And there's often, I think, probably a picture of the Liberty Bell or something like this. Mm -hmm. And what I vision is there's going to be a visit Philadelphia and people are going to see Harriet's Mm -hmm. and Ida's. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) And maybe even Nina's. I hope so. I hope so. You know, it's because Harriet's, I literally thought I was just going to be in there and I was going, you know, I was going, I wanted to write. I wanted a place that was quiet. I wanted a place that was, that felt peaceful in, in, a, in a land that felt non-peaceful. And I felt like, you know, whenever anybody walks in, I want them to feel that same sense of peace. And I wanted a place where if people wanted to have a dialogue about something that was happening in our community, that we had a space for that. Cause I was like, well, where are we doing this? Right. Where are we talking about the, our vision for what we would like to see our city look like? Where are we talking about, you know, where are we voicing concerns, but with a, with a solution focus? I couldn't, I don't know where that was at. And so I was like, I would love to have a space like that. Um, but mostly I'm sure people won't really come here that much. I'll have some books. Mostly it was my books in the beginning that I was selling. Cause I was like, I got to sell something in this bookstore. <laughs> um, and I had no idea that Harriet's would be the, the kind of place that it became. No idea. And people were like, Oh yes, you did. It was, you called it Harriet's. I was like, well, we called it, I called it Harriet's because I felt like there was no other person that I would love to celebrate in that moment for what she did for humanity. And I was like, I knew she came to Philly. There was nothing in Philly that that spoke to that in the way that I thought it should be celebrated. Um, It's like, you know, somebody leaves enslavement that they've been in since they were born. And the first place they decide to come is Philadelphia, you know? And that was the place where she experienced freedom for the first time. I just thought that was like, whoa. it still blows my mind, right? Like this was her place of freedom. And here we are living in that city. 
And I was like, okay, well then I want I want to sit with Harriet. That's who I want to be with. Um, no idea that it would be what it became. <laughs> None. It probably would. I don't know if I would have had that idea. I might have been too scared. Like if somebody would have said, "You're gonna be, you're gonna be in Oprah magazine, and you're gonna be in the New York Times, and you're gonna be on Vogue magazine," no one could have told me I was gonna be in Vogue magazine. So that was not a part of the plan. But you know, sometimes Harriet, Ida, sometimes they have a bigger plan. <laughs> I love this conversation with Janine. And once we finished recording, we kept talking and talking and talking and talking and sharing and sharing and sharing. So Janine is really, really creating something. Uh, She's creating a movement. What's remarkable is when you visit the bookshops and you have to come to Philadelphia, please visit the bookshops. Um, You will feel as if you've been transformed to be inside the book, exactly as she described. She and her team have designed the space and created a feeling and energy that makes you feel like you are immersed, the immersive experience in the book. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>